0: Welcome to the AOL Podcast. Let's dive right into this week's message.
1: Well, we always do our Bible. We lift the Bible up because this is the thing that uh, keeps us in line. And this is what we, so we have a declaration we make just for you folks that are new here tonight, if you hadn't done this before, but uh, this is what we say. Okay. This is my Bible. Bible. I I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. And I can have what it says I can have. I am about to be taught from the everlasting, incorruptible seed of the Word of God, and I will never be the same again. Amen. Y'all believe that? Well, believe it because it's the truth. You can't sit under the Word of God and not be changed somewhat. Uh, And I believe that with all my heart. So the main thing, we always start out with the main thing is the main thing, is that the main thing remains the main thing. And in this case, Jesus is the main thing. And uh, if you got your pen, just write this scripture down. I want you all to read it again later. But I'm going to you, read it to you. I didn't write it down here, but I just always like to exalt the name of Jesus in any way we can. But uh, write, write down John chapter 12, verse 32, and you can go back and read it yourself. But he just says this, and Jesus is talking. Uh, he's talking about his death on the cross, of course. And, and you can read this whole passage in context when you go back and read it. But on uh, verse thirty-two, it says, "And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people, peoples to myself." And so that's all. That's what we try to do in this in this study: is at all times try to lift up the name of Jesus in everything that we do. Are y'all getting anything out of this study of the Book of Revelation? I hope so. You know, after we finish tonight, we'll finish with chapter 10 and chapter, nearly all of chapter 11. But we'll be about halfway through, and I think I can finish, Pastor, by the end of May. So, if he allows me to go that, if he allows me to go that long. So, anyway, all right, because we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get her done one way or the other. All right, let's do a recap from our last uh, session a couple of weeks ago. Our uh, last lesson, we covered chapters 8 and 9. Where the seventh seal was opened, followed by the strange silence in heaven for for 30 minutes, an ominous and sober contemplation of the judgments about to be released with the sounding of the trumpets. For those of y'all that weren't here, I made a joke, and I'll say it again that 30 minutes just proves that men, that 30 minutes of silence just proves that men get to heaven at least 30 minutes before the women do. Wow. Uh, I got about the same reaction last time. That, that's nothing. <laughs> no, that's I'm just kidding. You know I am. So anyway, it's a, it really was an, an ominous and sober contemplation of the judgments about to be released with the sounding of the trumpets, which we're fixing to go. I mean, we've covered some in those last two chapters. And with the golden censer cast to the earth, the tribulation saints are seeing the answers to their prayers as the trumpet. Trumpets are sounded in order. The judgments begin on the ecosystems of the earth first, and then we see the demonic locusts released from the bottomless pit, followed by the release of four evil angels found it bound at the Euphrates River to kill another third of mankind with the 200 million demonic horsemen breathing fire, smoke, and brimstone, and yet men still refuse to repent. So now we continue in the Revelation uh, with chapters 10 and 11. So let's, uh, let's read chapters 10 all of it in its entirety is 11 verses. So let's read that and I and I saw still another I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. And he and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars when he cried out Seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and, I, and I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So this is the fourth interlude, like we talked about before in the last, several, uh, last uh, study. We had, uh, we're up to our fourth interlude. In other words, it's a, it's a parenthetical. It's a, it's a pause in the action, sort of. So that gives us details on events not included in the sealed trumpet or vile judgments, but happening during the time frame. It kind of catches us up in some things and and gives us a little bit more detailed information that we don't uh, couldn't get with all the rest of it. So this is the fourth interlude. I told you I think according to Dake and his study, he says there's about nine interludes in there. We'll see how it pans out on this, but uh, that's that's what we're we're up to the fourth one. So. Almost as if God knew we needed a mental and emotional rest from the stream of judgments, He gives us a break between the sixth and seventh trumpets. So we've already had six trumpets. Now we're up uh, with as a pause right here between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. In this interlude in Revelation 10, He fills in some details about what's happening at this same time back to heaven. Our focus shifts temporarily from the outpouring of God's wrath on unbelievers on the earth, You remember in those trumpet judgments, the last two, the locusts come out of the bottomless pit, and then we had the 200, just like we said, uh, horsemen uh, uh, come across the Euphrates. Uh, So the sixth and seventh seals, uh, when the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, were redeemed and sealed, now between the sixth and seventh trumpets, we are introduced to three personalities. Just as angels announced Jesus' first coming, they, they will also announce his second coming, coming to the earth. Uh, the first personality we meet is a mighty angel, and then later in Revelation 11, we'll meet two witnesses. So this this mighty angel is no regular angel, but neither is this angel the Lord Jesus Christ, who never appears in Revelation as an angel. Now, i, I put a parenthetical here myself. This is a huge point of scholarly and interpretive disagreement here because there's a lot of scholars that I highly respect that say this is pointing at Jesus Christ, and there's a lot that say it's not. It's, it's an angel. But anyway, we'll, you know, I'm not going to go through all the, all the details on that. But I think with the, with the weight of evidence we see here, we can say that it's, it's probably not uh, because Jesus is in heaven. This angel is going to stand on the earth, So I'm, and Jesus doesn't come back to the earth until the second coming. So anyway, that's just a little tidbit. When Jesus Christ appeared in the Old Testament before coming to the earth as a baby, he was called the angel of the Lord. And y'all, there's many texts that show that in the Old Testament. You've seen that in several instances. I didn't bring my proof text for that. But anyway, you can go look it up. Many times it makes a statement in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. And when it says the angel of the Lord, uh, that's, a, that's a what they call a definite article. So when it's, sometimes it says an angel of the Lord, and sometimes it says the angel of the Lord, and sometimes it just says angel of the Lord. The reason I say, pointed that out as the angel of the Lord is because it's a definite article, which means that it's, it's actually pointing to the angel of the Lord as representing uh, Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. In other words, it, it's what they call a, a theophany. In other words, it's a, an appearance of God in physical form when it says an angel of the Lord, when you see that in the Old Testament. Or it could be also, it could be a, what they call a Christophany, which is a, an appearance of Jesus Christ. A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, but that's just a little side note there. So after he died and rose again and received the glorified body, we're talking about Jesus. We only see him in the place of great power and glory at God's right hand, never as an angel again. When he was here in his humanity, he was not an angel; he was a man. That's very important because if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, then our our salvation is a is of no uh, value at all. He had to come as a human, as a man. So, therefore, he is revealed in the revelation as the glorified Christ, as the post-incarnate Christ. He is exalted to the highest place, says the, uh, Philippians uh, 2. You can read that in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, where it says, therefore God has also highly exalted him, giving him the name which is above all names. You can read that on your own. Probably ought to learn that one. We all ought to learn that one because one of these days we're going to sing his praises in heaven. This book unveils the full picture of what Jesus Christ is. New glories of his person, of his power, and performance unfold with each chapter. He is now the one judging mankind who rejected him as Savior. So when John describes this mighty angel coming down from heaven, he said another angel. So he had previously told us about a strong angel back in Revelation 5. We read about that one, the strong angel that grabbed the censer and and uh, threw it to earth. We saw that one. That was another uh, representation of a strong angel. The way these angels are dressed identifies them as with Christ. Evidently, they are special ambassadors of Christ, bearing all the credentials of his exalted position. This mighty angel comes down out of heaven from the presence of Christ, the one who is in the midst of the throne, and he is a sight to behold, this angel. This mighty angel says is clothed clothed with a cloud. Just like the clouds of glory associated with Christ at His ascension and at His second coming, you can read those two verses there. A rainbow is the cap of His uniform, and and what's unique about that? We, we all remember that a rainbow. That was the first covenant that God had met, had with man after after the after the earth was destroyed with the flood. He made the covenant and said He would never do that again. And so then the ark the the rainbow, or the ark. It, so it says to me, well, one commentator said that rainbow as his cap shows that he is always, always sits over over his head. It's a representation of Christ, but he's always thinking about the covenant, the first covenant he had with man that he would never destroy it again uh, with water or a flood. But the rainbow is the cap of his uniform and a reminder of God's faithfulness to his covenant with man and his mercy. Although the judgments have come thick and fast, Weird and wild, it defies our common language to describe them. This rainbow indicates that God will not send a flood to destroy man again. See that covenant if you want to read it for yourself in Genesis 9, the scriptures there. So, the the mighty angel's countenance is radiant with a face like the sun, reflecting the majesty of God. This is his badge of identification with Christ, a signature of his glory. And just like Moses' faith, face shone after he had been in God's presence, that's when he went up on the mountain, up on, on in, in Mount Sinai, when they were in the wilderness, and he went up to get the law. We can see that in Exodus 34, 29. This angel's face shines because he comes out from the Lord's presence. Even the angels, and it says, you know, one place in, in uh, Luke 24, 4, at the, as, at, when Jesus was raised from the uh, dead, his resurrection and the angels were sitting there in his tomb, and they went to see him. They seen the angels in there. Even the angels' robes glowed as Jesus' resurrection, because you can't come from the very presence of God without something uh, that that glory, some of that glory being associated with you. And that's what happened with these angels. Of course, they're in the presence of God all the time, and so then, and, and that just shows you that. Uh, and and when uh, Moses come down from the mountain. His face was so radiant they couldn't look upon him. He had to veil himself when he talked to the people because he had been in the presence of God in in, uh, Exodus. So uh, the angel's feet and legs were like pillars of fire, reminding us of the pillar of fire in the wilderness, the manifestation of God's holiness, mercy, and judgment. But you can also look at at Revelation 1.15 and Daniel 10.6 if you want some other cross-references for that, which shows us, in Daniel 10:6, when Daniel's talking to the to the uh, person there uh, about uh, things to happen, that person had arms and feet like burnished bronze. So that's another manifestation of a pre-incarnate uh, could be this pre-incarnate God at, or Christ at the time. too. and plus in Revelation 1:15, we see the description of Jesus at the start of the book of Revelation. We've already covered that, but he was, when he looked, turned and looked and seen one like the Son of Man, his feet were like fine brass is what it says there. So, I mean, this is all part of just a representation where it's showing this angel is actually uh, showing things of what Jesus, he's been in the presence of God, he's taken these things just like Jesus. It also says in that one scripture up there that he comes, he says with the, uh, uh, where it says the about, old, and he said, he cried with a loud voice when a lion roars. So, you know, you always think about Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, and so that's another representation or another uh, uh, symbol, symbolic of, of Jesus when, when that happens. In his hands, this mighty messenger holds a little book, which logically would be the seven-sealed book we've seen before as we talk, talk, went through, you know, we went through the opening of the seven, the sixth seal. Uh, the seventh seal uh, brought us to the trumpets, and then now we've been through the Six trumpets. We still have one trumpet left to go. So John used a different and rare Greek word to describe it. Uh, the little book is called a Bibl- Uh and when he describes the scroll in the first in, in the first episode, where in chapter five, it's biblion. But it, all it says is just a it's just a little book versus the big scroll. But it's likely the same scroll since it's already been opened, unrolled in the angel's hand. This little book, if it is the same as the seven-sealed scroll, was originally in the hand of the Father in heaven uh, who transfers it to the nail-pierced hands of God the Son, and the only one who had the right and was worthy to open it. When Jesus broke open the seven seals on the scroll, it introduced the seven trumpets, six of which have already been blown. And so after he removes the seals, the Lord Jesus Christ in turn gives the scroll or book to the angel who then finally gives it to John to eat. This is the title deed of the earth and, and contains the judgments the Lord executes in the great tribulation. The book is now open and the judgments are on display. The, the book gives the angel authority to claim both the sea and earth for Christ. If you look in Ephesians one twenty two, when we talk about the, the authority to claim the earth, sea and the earth, that's, this scripture says, And he put all things... Under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. So all things are basically he's he's showing that you know this that verse was a was a a a verse that was showing forth what was going to happen that all, all things are going to be under his feet. He puts one foot on the this angel. He puts one feet a foot on the sea and the other foot upon the earth and says they belong to God. We are but tenants in the world created. It's a great voice. In a great voice, this angel claims it all for Christ as Creator and Redeemer. The world belongs to Him. Read further in those scriptures there, if you would like. Um, at the um, as the angel declares this, a, ma- a majestic, loud cry produced seven thunders. Is this God's Amen to what was just said about this? What He's talking about about Him raising his hand and and declaring everything uh, uh, the authority to claim everything for Jesus uh, the in the heaven I mean in the earth the sea I, I think it is job 375 says God thunders marvelously with his voice he does great things which we cannot comprehend so uh, you know the, the the God's voice if you go back and look even in in uh, Exodus when the when all the Israelites their own I mean they're they're uh, in the wilderness, and they're around Mount Sinai. I remember when the thunderings and the lightnings and the, and everything, the trumpets blowing, and all the loud noises were going on. And they, they relate the voice or the thunderings to God's voice. And it was so, it was to them, it was so unbearable. They were afraid of it, and so they asked for for uh, Moses. He said, let him speak to you, not to us, because we're afraid he's gonna, we're, we're going to die from it, you know. So they, they were afraid. But God's voice is associated with thunders and thunderings, as we can see many times throughout Scripture. So uh, the, the, angel mes- the angel's message involves the whole world, too. This book is little because the time of the Great Tribulation won't be long. The Lord Jesus said it was brief. The prophet Daniel labeled it as, a seven, as, as seven years. That's what we talked about. I think it was in Lesson 2 or 3. We talked about the 70th week and tried to explain that. Uh, you can go back and read that in Daniel 9 if you want to write this down and go back and read it again, uh, Daniel 9, uh, 24 through 27. There's not much time left. Romans nine twenty eight tells us he will finish the work, and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. This is when Paul is writing, and in verse, in chapters nine, ten, and eleven, he's he's talking about the Jews. That the Jews are not jo- done with yet, but they need to get it with the program. In other words, they need to get to believing, uh, because the time is short, and uh, he will finish the work and cut it sh- and cut it short in righteousness. So uh, God's not, uh, and we'll see more about that later. And I'll and, and I encourage you also to go. Uh, uh, read uh, Psalm 29 uh, verses 3 through 9. It's a good example of what what he's talking about—the voice of the Lord. And if you read those those uh, scriptures there, you'll see the voice related to thunder. But you'll see the voice seven times, so that's a it's always a good representation. So it's showing uh, things that relate to the thunder of of the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord Jesus. Now in heaven, confirms the angels' claim that he will he will soon come to power on this earth. John took down this confirmation as the visions were given to him, and he was about to write what the seven thunders had spoken. He heard it, and they were audible words, but he was forbidden to do so. Why? This is the only place in Revelation where there, where anything is sealed. Everything else is revealed. After all, it is the book of the Revelation. Uh, God makes it clear at the end of the book that he has told everything. Yet the Lord Jesus, that voice that come from heaven in verse 4, Said to John, seal it up, seal them up. Don't write this down. To this day, they remain a secret. Although revelation reveals Jesus Christ, there are many things God doesn't tell us. Uh, Pastor used this verse, uh, I think, Sunday morning. But there's a verse in uh, Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29 that says, the, "The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that they are, that we may do all the work of Him." Of his law, so you know there are some th- secret things. Right. If the seven thunders' message is sealed, it is not for man to know at this time. So no further conjecture is necessary or wise. We would be foolish to speculate on what this may or may not be. It is, to, if it is to be disclosed, if at all, at the right time by God Himself. That should be good enough for you and me, right? Yeah. Verses five and six, uh, just to recover that again. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and all the things that are in it, the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. This mighty angel standing both on the sea and the land takes an oath in the name of Christ who is in heaven and as Christ's representative, he claims it all for Christ. There another scripture that uh, confirms that, Colossians 1 for by him All things were created that are in heaven and all that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. The angel also comforts God's saints on earth, the tribulation saints that are still alive in the middle of of this trouble, that it won't last much longer. Christ will return soon, he promises. There should be delay no longer. This glad announcement from heaven says the time is short. Don't worry. He who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus said that himself in Matthew 24, 13. Why? Because God has sealed them, and they will make it through the great tribulation. The martyrs in heaven have been praying for this, too. Remember, we've seen the martyrs under the altar. Uh, how long, O oh Lord, will you be before you, uh, you uh, take care of all this and make the judgments? The kingdom is coming as we pray, as as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer many times in Matthew six ten. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We've said that many, many times. Um, and, and we're talking about the kingdom today, but also about the kingdom that comes in the millennial kingdom that's going to come at the end of the tribulation. Verse 7 says, But in the days of sounding of the seventh trumpet or the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. The seal and trumpet judgments take time to unfold, giving people time to repent. But sadly, many do not repent. The bold judgments have come with this seventh trumpet that comes. The bold judgments that come with this seventh trumpet will happen so quickly in succession that people will have little time to turn around. Second Peter three verse. You can read uh, a good uh, rendition of that and about repenting and coming to Jesus. But I, I want to just. Uh, This time for grace and mercy is running out. You know, one thing we see in Revelation, if nothing else, one thing we'll always see is uh, God, Jesus Christ, is a a God of long-suffering. He wants people to come to him. And he gives so many places where, you know, there's the time out. You know, pay attention. Repent. and and take advantage of this grace and mercy. And if there's anything else we see about that, we can see that truly, and it says this right here in Second in Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is suffering long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Praise God for that, and thank God for His grace and mercy. This all takes place when the seventh angel is ready to blow the trumpet. As this seventh trumpet announces the second half of the Great Tribulation, God will fully reveal this mystery, his mystery, his plans for humanity. We've been told many single facets of this mystery, including the nation Israel, judgment, suffering, injustice, the silence of God, and the coming kingdom. But this mystery is greater than the sum total of all. Why did God permit evil, and why is he tolerated it for so long that the foundation to it that's the foundation to this mystery, and God has handled, handed it, hasn't handed it, God hasn't handed in his answer yet is what I'm trying to say. He will someday. He has a whole lot to tell us, and when we get into his presence, we'll find out. So here's an important side note to go along with this. The word mystery, uh, it's mysterion uh, in Greek, appears several times in the Bible, meaning that God is going to declare a truth that is only possible to know in his word. Human, uh, human wisdom never has comprehended, nor will ever be able to deduce these truths apart from the Word of God. That's why it's so important to be in the Word of God. There's truths in the Word of God that you'll never see anywhere else. This is the Holy Spirit illumination and then revelation. The mystery of God here referred to can only mean the plan of salvation. That's the greater plan of salvation. It's been from the point from the time God created the earth till the time when he sets up his kingdom. One of the characteristics of salvation involves the mystery of how a holy God could love sinful man, humans, human beings sufficiently to send his own son, only son, into the world to die for their sins. This was made known to the prophets. God's servants in the Old Testament and New Testament. For all those thousands of years, people have been living under the mystery of God where it is possible for the sinful, fallen human race to be reinstated into fellowship with God by being born again into His family without works, but by faith and faith alone in Jesus, His Son. The little book. After this, John apparently returns to the earth in spirit and hears the Lord Jesus' voice from heaven directing him to take the book or the scroll Uh, from the angel. Jesus is in full charge of every operation recorded in Revelation. God has highly exalted him and gives him a name above every name. He is now acting as judge of all the earth. As John takes the book, the angel invites him into the great drama of unfolding. He tells John to do a very strange thing, eat it. Eating the book means to receive the word of God with faith. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel instruct the same. In those passages you can go back and read those and you can see it in Psalm 119 103 things about the word of God that it's it's sweet to the mouth or proverbs 16 24 it's like uh, the honeycomb and uh, and you can read also in John uh, 641 through 59 that great passage where uh, Jesus is talking about he said I am the bread of life You, you probably remember that you I know we've had it preached in this pulpit many times but he says I am the bread of life and and then he says you must eat of my eat of my body and drink of my blood and that turned many disciples away at that time and many left him at that time but he talks about the bread of life and so it's talking about you know eat it it's it's consuming the word of God and receiving the word of God into your spiritual inner man is what it's all about Uh, So, the part of God's Word John was told to eat was God's judgment. First, sweet, and then bitter. It's the typical quality of God's Word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, it cuts both ways. That's why it's sweet and bitter. It's sweet to the know. It's sweet to know what God is going to do, but bitter when you realize judgment is coming. John eagerly received the word of God. Isn't that just like, though, when you think of the sweet and bitter, it's just like the gospel message? When you talk about the gospel message, I mean, it's just, you think about the gospel message. It's, it, it, the gospel message is talking about salvation. It's salvation to those who believe. That's the sweetness and it's judgment to those who don't. That's the bitterness. You think about that in that, in that way. That's, that's the whole, that, that when he consumes that book, that's the whole message we're seeing right there is the is is gospel uh, of God. John eagerly received the word of God, but it was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his digestive system. John is told that he must prophesy to all nations, all peoples, all tongues, not just a message to the church, but to all the world that needs to hear the Word of God to be warned of the coming judgment. In other words, he's he's pre- preaching this message in the last days by writing this book, this book of Revelation, what he's writing down here. This is what he's preaching to all nations, that they will see that the time is coming when you, if you haven't partaken of the sweetness of the Word, you're going to have to partake of the bitterness of the Word. And that's bottom line what it means. This is why... This little book become bitter to him. He must prophesy again many against many before Christ comes to his kingdom. Just like us, we can delight in reading the section of the, this section of the Word of God and know what God intends to do, but the prophecy of coming judgments to a world who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ is bitter. We can also take this to heart. Many people begin to study the study of prophecy with enthusiasm, but when they find that it applies to their lives, this prophecy that we're talking about and all these things that we've been talking about, it applies to our lives now and makes demands on them personally. They lose interest, and it becomes a bitter thing. That's the way a lot of people come to church. When they hear something that gives them that bitter conviction in their heart, a lot of times they say, I'm not going back there. That's too, that's too tough a word. I can't handle it. They might get that here at this church. But anyway, but they discover the Word of God speaks more to a holy life than coming events. Uh, First John 3:3 3, 3 says, "And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure." See, if we look at, the, if we read the book of Revelation and we see the things that are going on in the book of Revelation, we have that hope in us, and we see what's happened. We have that hope that we're not going to have to go through that. We're going, we're not going to have to suffer the wrath of God, and so that keeps us in the mindset of we want to live a, a life of purity before Him because we've been saved, and that's the that's the that's the way of a saved person's life. You can't study prophecy and live a dirty life. The whole Word of God must have its way in our hearts. The study of prophecy will have a definite effect upon your life. It will either bring you closer to Christ or it will take you farther from Him. Next, we'll go to the two witnesses. We're starting in, in uh, chapter 11 of Revelation. Let's read. There's two sections, but I'll read, we'll read it all together because it kind of has a pause in between these two sections, verse 1 and 2 and then uh, 3 through 12. Then I I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And then we start in verse 3 of the next section. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, these are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, the fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heaven so that rain, no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast... That ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the streets, a street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Jerusalem. I mean Sodom and Egypt. This is actually Jerusalem, but they, it's called Sodom and Egypt. We'll get to that here in just a minute. Where also our Lord was crucified. That's why I'm saying it's Jerusalem. Uh, then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days, and lot, not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God, to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. When will this tribulation end? During the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets, God gives us extra encouraging information about his plan for the end. In the next 42 months, the time of the Gentiles will run out. Jesus talks about the last half of the tribulation in Luke 21, 24, where he's saying Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, that time is coming quickly. This season, when the Gentiles' hostility towards Israel is most intense, is when Gentiles will dominate or trample the outer court of the temple and the rest of Jerusalem for 42 months. The Antichrist will break his covenant with Israel in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. You can see that in Daniel 9:27. Uh, uh, read it. It says, and in, and in, in, it says in the, in halfway through the week. Well, actually, I got that verse. It says, but in in if you read in 27, it just says, but in the middle of the week. Well, first of all, it says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for a week. So the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel for a year or for seven years, which we discussed before. A week is seven years in, in what we're talking about. But in the middle of the week, after three and a half years. He shall bring it in to the sacrifice and offerings. That's when he's breaking covenant. And, uh, and anti-Semitism will peak in intensity. So let me ask you a question. Is, anti- is anti-Semitism increased today? At, absolutely. Ever since October the 7th when the Hamas terrorists entered, into, uh, in, in, entered in from Gaza and killed so many uh, Jewish people, and, and ever since then, you have everybody that's on the bandwagon for Palestine, but everybody doesn't want to support Israel. So anti-Semitism is really at a peak right now, even so. But you can imagine during this time, after three and a half years, when when uh, they, he's had a covenant with Israel for that long, and then all of a sudden he shuts it down and starts his war against Israel, then anti- anti-Semitism will be at its peak of intensity, and everybody will be wanting to kill Jews at that time. Anyway, just a side note. In his vision, John is given a rod and told to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. Every time God directs measurements in either the Old or New Testament, it relates to the nation Israel. You can see that in Jeremiah 31, that passage there. Go back and read it in Zechariah 2. So, since you measure your personal property, you know when you buy a piece of property, you always have a survey done on it. So, you you measure your property to see what you what you're getting or what you're buying. So uh, it stands to reason God's instructions to measure the temple could mean he is resuming possession and ownership of it and the worshipers. God isn't told to measure common things or Gentile things, the outer court, which belongs to the Gentiles. Anybody that wanted to come, they could go to the outer court, but they could not cross from the outer court into the other court, which was the uh, the next court over. If they did, they could be stoned right there on the spot. But anyway, there was a court of the what they call the court of Gentiles that Gentile worshipers or believers in God could go to that far, but that's, that's the only far. They couldn't cross in to that one where only Jews could go. Uh, the court outside the temple is not measured because the Gentiles will trample or disrespect it for the next 42 months. We're talking about the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the last period of the seven-year tribulation. You can go back and read also in Ezekiel chapter 40 where... Uh, Ezekiel is instructed to measure the temple, and he is measuring the temple of the millennium, the, the millennial temple. So you can go back and me- read that, too, because we know that the temple of the, of the, of the thousand-year reign will be, of course, built and be totally God. So he's instructed to measure that. But also another side note to know that is, is when we're talking about that because he says don't, or don't measure because the Gentiles will trample or disrespect it for 42 months. It could all be also be a symbolic of measuring it would be like you take the measure of a man. I, you know, you, you've heard that phrase before, you know, what measure of man are you or something like that. But it could also be a symbolic of judgment when we're saying, you know, measure something like that. So do you, how do you measure up? Or are you measuring, how, you, how are you measuring things? So there's two, two things you could look at there. You know, God's taking ownership and possession, or He's also uh, measuring His, uh, his enemies and, and the judgment that's going to be poured out upon them. In all, you know, when we're talking about this, this temple of God that, that we're referring to here, uh, to both the holy place and the holy of holies, not including the courtyards, this is evidently the temple the Jews will build in Jerusalem either before or during the first three and a half years. Of Daniel's 70th week, we know that the temple is going to be built again after after the rapture, after uh, after uh, the antichrist makes his covenant with the Jews. There's going to be another temple built, and they've got stuff already. They've already got people. There's a there's a temple institute. There's a the faithful of the temple. There's several groups around the world that are getting things put together where they they believe that they can put a temple together, a complete temple. When they get the place to do it, a complete temple within eight to nine months from the time it's signed, you know, because they've already got things built. They've got, they've already got the uh, the the gold menorah built, you know, that was in the the lampstand that was in the holy of the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place. They've already got it built, and it's on display, from what I understand, and what what our study when we were talking about uh, the wilderness tabernacle. They've got it built. So, you know, they're building all this furniture. They're building the altar, the golden altar. They're building the bronze altar. They're getting ready so they can start sacrificing all over again in, in, the, in, in the temple whenever that place is built. And I read an article, too, that said, uh, you know, most, most people say, how is this going to happen? Because the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim uh, thing that's there now, is supposedly in the place where the temple was. Well, through through more study and, and looking at other uh, uh, historical data that shows there, it says actually the temple was probably built, the, the the temple, the last temple was there, and the temple could be built right to the north of where this Dome of the Rock is. So there's space there for that temple to be built. And you know when he says do not, uh, do not measure the court outside the temple, there, these people are saying, well, the temple could still be built right there, and that, um, that Dome of the Rock could be considered the Court of the Gentiles because Gentiles, Muslims, are considered Gentiles. And, you know, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. There's just two different classes for them. for them. So anyway, it's not impossible to be built. It could be built in eight or nine months. They've got things ready. They actually say that the uh, the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, there's been many things written about that, but they also say that the, the Ark of the Covenant disappeared before... Uh, they hid that before it was carried away. It was not carried away in the Babylonian, Babylonian captivity. And they said it was hidden somewhere in some of the catacombs underneath the mount somewhere. So they say it's there. They're, they say they've actually, people say, have said they've laid eyes on the actual Ark of the, ark of the Covenant that, uh, that was in the Holy of Holies. So they say that could be brought out. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of speculation there. But anyway, I'm just saying those things could happen. And in eight to nine months after that, treaty was signed uh, they could have a temple uh, fully going and fully ready for worship you've, you know you've heard the story about the people in Texas that have raised the red heifers that have the red heifers ready to to uh, be the the thing that would uh, purify and sanctify the new temple so there's there's already work to be done in that in that area but anyway I, I digress I'm on a rabbit trail here so So, this is evidently the temple the Jews will build in Jerusalem either before or during the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. This puts us back, when when this temple is built, this puts us back on Old Testament ground. In other words, we're going back to Old Testament times. For there's no temple given to the church. That doesn't have any application to the church. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit today, as we see in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. It says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You've had that, we've had that preached to us many times. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter, 1 Peter two five says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So that, you know, a temple has no effect. It's just a facade. It's just a place. It has nothing to do with us at this point, a temple being built. God also instructs John to, in, to measure the altar, referring to the golden altar of prayer, since the altar for burnt offerings was in the outer court. He was to measure or count the worshipers, too, godly Jews who will worship God. During these 42 months, we also will meet two witnesses who will prophesy in sackcloth for the entire 1260 days. By the way, scripture has always required two witnesses to bear testimony to anything before it was to be heard in the Old Testament and the church. You can see that in Deuteronomy 17.6 and Matthew 18.16, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. We don't know exactly who these witnesses are except that they are human. Some of the most reliable and popular suggestions these are the three that are the most reliable and popular that I found: Elijah and Enoch, or Elijah and John the Baptist, or Elijah and Moses. Now you see Elijah's on three, so it's pretty much a—he's pretty much the—he makes the grand slam. You know, he's he's included in just about everybody's. But then we have Enoch, John the Baptist, or Moses as the other one. So it might be Elijah, and more than likely it will be, since he was predicted to return. You can see that in Malachi 4. And five in Matthew 17:11, these two witnesses are called lampstands, standing before the God of the earth. In verse four, Elijah was fond of saying, "The Lord of God, the Lord God of Israel, lives before whom I stand," uh, several times in the in 1 Kings 17, uh, 1 and 18:5. But that's what he—that's how he kind of. Identifies himself, the Lord, or when he's when he's spoken to, the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. He said that in several times. I, I, I looked it up. These witnesses are are two olive trees and two lampstands. They are anointed, Holy Spirit empowered, and they are lights in the world. Read that. I, I encourage you to go back and read all of Zechariah four because it'll help you to understand why we're talking about. Uh, the lampstands and the olive branches, it'll help you greatly to, to understand that. If you go back, we're not going to take time to read that. But there is strong support in this passage from, from Malachi for Elijah and Moses as the two witnesses and talking about the great day of the Lord. Malachi 4, 4 and 5 says, Remember the law of Moses, there's Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments, and Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So God's already saying that right there, that he's going to send Elijah back before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which is the time we're talking about now, is the day of the Lord is that time of, of when um, the church has been raptured and the seven-year tribulation. This is the day, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah and Moses were brought into view at the time of Jesus' transfiguration. You can see that in Matthew 17, 1 through 5. The Old Testament representatives, Elijah and Moses, as seen by New Testament Jews. Peter, James, and John were there with uh, Jesus. Since we are back on Old Testament grounds now with a new temple built, Moses and Elijah would represent the entire Old Testament to the Jewish nation, them being being referred to in Luke 16, uh, 27 through 29 as Moses and... And the prophets. In other words, Luke 16, 27 through 29 is that passage about the rich man and Lazarus both go die. The rich man's in torment. Uh, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. And he says, uh, Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, he's ta- you know, talking to Father Abraham, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. So that's what that's referring to is Moses and the prophets, which meaning Moses representing the law and the first five books of the Old Testament and Elijah representing all the prophets. So that's that's where they get that, where it could be Elijah and Moses. And so supporting the suggestion of Enoch and Elijah as the two witnesses, both are Old Testament prophets. The witnesses are prophets. That's what it says in 11, uh, Revelation 11.10. Both have never died, you know. Elijah went up with the with the flaming chariots, and and uh, Enoch walked with God and was not. And so, you know, they neither one of those died. Uh, so, it is, but it says, you know, it is appointed unto one, appointed us, appointed unto us once to die. That's in uh, Hebrews nine twenty seven. These two witnesses will die. Elijah called down from called down from fire, down fire from heaven. The witnesses. The witnesses call down fire from heaven. Elijah closed the heavens for 42 months. They closed the heavens for 42 months in Revelation 11, 6. Enoch prophesied about the Lord returning in judgment in Jude 14 and 15. You can read that. That's, he, he quotes out of the book of Enoch. Uh, both are mentioned by the early fathers as, as the two witnesses. In other words, before the the Council of Nicaea, when, when the, when the ch- uh, church creed was adopted, uh, I'm talking about... Uh, uh, church fathers such as Augustine and and uh, uh, I can't think of the, some of the other names. Or I was going to write them down, but these were these were men before uh, 320 uh, A.D. Uh, they were they identified uh, Enoch and, and Elijah as witnesses, and they were closer to the time than we were. So anyway, that just gives that's supporting. Uh, you know, it's it, it's things that support uh, Enoch and Elijah. John the Baptist may be a consideration for the second witness also. But the support is not as strong. As the forerunner of Christ in his first coming, he was similar to Elijah in manner and messages. In message. He came in the same spirit and power. But in John 121, when the Pharisees asked him if he was Elijah or a prophet, his answer to both questions was no. John was preparing the way for the first advent of Christ. Elijah will be pre- preparing the way for the second advent of Christ. These two witnesses likely will appear during the first half of the tribulation up until the beast appears. Their work is described in Old Testament language. Two olive trees suggest the vision in Zechariah 4 when the lampstands are Joshua and Zerubbabel. You need to go back. That's why I say you need to go back and read that entire passage in in, uh, Zechariah 4 to get a better handle of it. Whom the Holy Spirit empowered to stand against insurmountable difficulties. This is when... Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, or how you say it, Joshua. They were sent back to rebuild a temple in uh, from from captivity, and they were sent back to rebuild the temple around 520 uh, BC. And it's talking about them. Zechariah is is the prophet at that point, Uh, and and it talks about them standing before the Lord. Uh, But but see what we have here. When you say Joshua, he was he was the high priest at that time, so he represents spiritual authority. Zerubbabel. He was the governor and he represents civil authority. So we got both of those coming here. In other words, civil authority is the is the law, spiritual authority is the prophets or whatever like that. You might look at that and say that they, they, they could that's why they're representative and why that passage is that passage points uh, to um, uh, the two witnesses, uh supports the two witnesses. The Holy Spirit will also be present during the Great Tribulation period. These two witnesses are lights before the power of darkness, the uh, powers of darkness. The Holy Spirit fills them with miraculous power to bring fire down from heaven. And you can read that. It sounds like Elijah in First Kings. You remember that passage when uh, Elijah is battling the, the prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Baal and brings down fire, you know, and it consumes their uh, altar and all that, you know, and, and so he was able to bring down fire in a great way. Uh, so, you know, Elijah's, it's really looking strong for him to be one of the two witnesses, but Anyway, these two witnesses are immortal and immune to all attacks until their mission is completed. By the way, all of God's people are immortal until God has accomplished His purpose through them. Did you know that? Isn't that something to think about, really, until your purpose is completed? That's a great thing to think about, you know. Nothing can stop you if you'll just pay attention and do what God's called you to do. God gives them unlimited authority, the same power Christ will have when He returns to the earth. To the earth, the witnesses can control rainfall on the earth, and they can turn water into blood. They can strike the earth with any plague they they wish, as often as they wish. They have God's confidence in power to do what they think. Now, when we talk about witness, uh, one thing I want to tell you: witnesses serve. With such power, in fact, that uh, this was a this was a commentary from one. He said these these witnesses serve with such power, in fact, that they are able to witness 1,260 days, in spite of all the antagonism that they're going to get during that three and a half years. So they they've got great power. They've got great immunity. In other words, nothing can harm them until God says they're done, and that's when they will be that. That's when they will be dead or killed. The witnesses lie anyway. They will, uh, let me, I almost got ahead of myself there. But anyway, they, they, can, they, uh, they, they work with great power uh, is what we, what we will see. Uh, and let me give you a, a word about, I think it's down here somewhere. Okay, I'll get to it here in just a minute. They will prophesy about God for 1,260 days, and then their testimony will be complete. Then, and only then, will God allow their lives to be touched in the midst of the week, Halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist, also known as the beast, and the man of sin, who is moving to power, will bring back first the Roman Empire. And then, when he gets the whole world under his control, he will overcome and kill uh, these two witnesses. This is a temporary victory of darkness over light, evil over righteousness, hell over heaven, and Satan over God, because God is going to let Satan loose during this period. So it's temporary. It looks, you know, it's the thing about it is, sometimes we look around and we think, the devil's winning, but you know all this is temporary because God. We know that we've read the end of the book, and that's what we're reading now is the end of the book. These witnesses will live up to their name. They are witnesses. Same word in Greek for martyr. In other words, when you see martyr in the Bible, you could say witness. When you see witness, you could say martyr. It's the same word. They will be killed in the street of Jerusalem. The same sad designation where also our Lord was crucified. In verse eight, their bod- bodies or their carcasses of their bodies bodies are left on the street like roadkill. <coughs> These are crude, cold, barbaric days in the tribulation, and people will have descended, people will have descended to the lowest degenerate and inhumane characteristics. You know, we can see flashes of that now all around us about how far people have degenerated and how far we've gone down with the with the with no respect for life, no respect for people's property and all those kind of things, and we see that. Just think what it's going to be uh, you know, in the middle of the tribulation, how degenerate these people will be celebrating these two people. As their bodies lie in the street, the world be, will be watching them, startled to hear that they are dead. Some will be skeptical. All the television networks will have their cameras trained on their bodies. Three and a half days they will lay there and the world will celebrate. They hated these witnesses because they give testimony to what was what, against them. The people will give gifts to each other. It will be like a devil's holiday celebrating the antichrist victory and then three and a half days later something happens while the world is celebrating the death of these witnesses and while the television cameras are focused upon them god will breathe life back into them and the witnesses will stand up on their feet literally they will resurrect all the networks will regret their cameras focus because they won't want to give that kind of news they won't report that they'll they'll shut down so fast uh, they can't get it down shut down fast enough nobody wants to see that And then everyone will hear a voice out of heaven saying, come up here, and the witnesses will be caught up. They'll be raptured. That's another rapture. Into heaven in a cloud of glory, just like the ascension and the coming of Lord Jesus, they're going to go in a cloud of glory. What a sight that will be. There's going to be people, because you know there's going to be people with their cell phones and their and their cameras and things like that, even if the networks don't repeat it. You're going to see it on Instagram, or you're going to see it on something. Somebody's going to catch the whole thing and say, wow, did you see that, and there he goes, you know. And so uh, we won't have to worry about Instagram at that time. So hopefully, I don't think we'll need Instagram in heaven. So and I just I wanted to say a word about witness. When it says witness, I, I read a good uh, uh, a good commentary on that that was good about I like this it says right there it says when you think about a witness and you know people we're all witnesses right everybody in here that's a believer is a witness witness does not mean it's not something that you do we we think you know i'm going to go witness to somebody but it's not something that you do you need to write this down it's not something that you do it's something that you are and and and, and then going to giving testimony is what a witness does but it's not a witness is not something that you do; it's something that you are, and that means every aspect of your life. Whether you're giving testimony, where you're living life in front of people, whatever it is, or whatever you're doing, you're being a witness in that. It doesn't mean speaking with your mouth all the time. It's living your life. It's it's how you how you live your life and how people see your live life is lived. It's something that you are instead of something that you do. Anyway, I thought that would be good. So we're still in the lull between the between the sixth and seventh trumpet, in the second woe. And you know, we talked about the la- in the last, I think it was in chapter nine, where the angel's flying through heaven in a loud voice, and he's crying. He gives us the three woes. He says, woe, woe, woe. And he's talking about, there's, there's the three last trumpet judgments. And I found something out. Uh, I, I was very good last night. We were at, at uh, uh, the Barry's uh, uh, Bible study. He's such a man of wisdom and got so many good notes, but I he said, we were talking about, the, we're studying the Beatitudes, but he said one of, something led us over into the Scriptures where he's talking about the past where uh, Jesus is talking to the people and he says, woe to you hypocrites, you know, and he, and he explained woe to me better than I've ever seen before uh, because I know woe is a, is a sign of judgment, but he says woe means, when, when he says woe, it means stop. It's, it's something that says stop, look, and listen for you are being judged. So when, that, when you see that phrase, woe, on there, that's, that's something to pay attention to when Jesus says that. He says, stop, look, and listen, for you are being judged. I thought that was so good. But any, anyway, in, in that exact hour, a huge earthquake shook Jerusalem, limited just to Jerusalem, just like when Jesus died on the cross in Matthew 27, 51 through 52. Uh, we see that the earthquake happened when Jesus died and the veil was ripped in the temple from top to bottom. They had a great earthquake. Well, this is going to be even a greater earthquake. One-tenth of the city collapsed, killing 7,000. That's going to happen. We'll we'll collapse. And the expression used here means that these were people of prominence, uh, these 7,000, who got their names into the headlines when the Antichrist came to power. So uh, what we're talking about, and I didn't say that earlier, but when we're talking about I wanted to say something about uh, what we're talking about, Jerusalem. Uh, I can't remember that note. I left it someplace. Uh, when we're talking about Jerusalem be, Jerusalem being called um, uh, uh, Sodom and Egypt, what we're talking about, he's describing that because at this time, when the Antichrist is ruling, eh, Jerusalem is going to be such a city of corruption that it's going to be identified as Sodom and Egypt. Sodom meaning gross immorality and Egypt meaning... Uh, idolatry and, and uh, uh, oppression and slavery. So that's the reason he calls Jerusalem at that time, he says that city, Sodom and Egypt, when it's referred to at that point. So anyway, that's just a flashback to one of those I, I wanted to tell you earlier. But when he says, when you see that Sodom and, and uh, Jerusalem, uh, Sodom and Egypt, he's talking about those things that we're, we're talking about. Here, we're talking about a Jerusalem now that is full of corrupt people. Because these are people that are of high esteem. They, this is where the Antichrist is going to be seated. You know, and in in, in, in we'll get to that. You know, the the uh, the um, uh, uh, desolation of abomination when he sets himself up as a, as God in the in the temple. But we'll get to that. But add these add these seven thousand people that are slain to the already slain a fourth of the world's population were killed at first and then a third of the population totaling over 50% and now thousands more again no wonder the lord jesus said the days of tribulation had to be short or else no one would be left alive that's why he's he's got this thing's got to come to a quick end so in the aftermath of that of that great uh, earthquake some people turn to God. It says in that passage, it says, verse verse 13, it says, um, the rest were afraid and gave glory to God. Now, that don't mean they become Christians. They gave glory to God because they've seen the awesome power of God as, as that 7,000 people were killed in that great great earthquake. They were overwhelmed by his power. Others were filled with terror, and still others are furious with God because he is judging sin. Isn't that some of the way it is nowadays? God God doesn't judge sin, right? He's such a good God. He's a good God. He can't. You know he can't. He wouldn't do things like that. So uh, get ready for judgment. that's all I can say. He is judging sin, going against the lie they believed that God never punishes evil. This ends the second woe. The third woe begins shortly, though not immediately. The blowing of the seventh trumpet ushers the, us chronologically right to the entrance of eternity, leading us beyond the great tribulation into the millennium. The seventh trumpet, likewise, opens us up to the seven personalities of chapters. Twelve and thirteen. The third woe begins with Satan, one of the personalities. When Satan, one of the personalities, is cast down to heaven, at cast down to earth, you can just imagine the havoc that will that will cause when he comes to earth. So that's what we'll cover next time in, in chapters twelve and thirteen. We'll try to get and we'll have a little t- tidbit of uh, the finish up the chapter eleven, uh, the three or four verses there. We'll cover on that. But uh, but anyway, that that's it's it's getting. Uh, it's getting dicey like they say, you know, things like going on there. Okay, so hopefully you got something out of that tonight and and good y'all are glad y'all are here tonight, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for everything that it's revealing to us. And thank you, Father. Uh, I, I pray, Father, that each one of us has always leaves this place with a renewed sense of urgency about the, the time is short. Even on this time now, the time is short, and we see by the signs that we see that things are happening and accelerating at a great pace. So, Father, we just, uh, I pray for strength and encouragement and emboldening each one of us to do the things that we're called to do that we might fulfill the purpose that we have on this earth is to, is to bring more people into the kingdom of God any way that we can. We thank you for your word. We bless you and praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Well, we want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We pray that you heard from God and that this message was for you. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people with this message. Arena of Life takes pride in connecting to God, to church, and to people. And we want to connect with you. So don't forget to check us out on all social media platforms to check out our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and to download the Church Center app and to choose Arena of Life as your church. And a special thanks to those who make a difference by giving generously. You help us change lives and produce weekly content like this that reaches the world. If you're interested in partnering with us, you can give by clicking the link in our bio, through the website, arenaoflifechurch.org, or through the Church Center app, May the Lord bless you and keep you, and we'll see you next week.